As you're reading through the Bible, how can you keep your eye on the bigger picture? Well, one way to do that is to keep your eye on the four elements that make up the kingdom of God. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his presence and blessing. During this big picture series, we've looked at those themes as we saw them in the Garden of Eden. And then we've looked at them as Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. We've looked at the kingdom as it was promised to Abraham and pictured when the people finally entered the land. We've looked at the kingdom reaching its height in the Old Testament under David and Solomon, followed by the exile from the land and eventual return. And then we began uh, what what turned into a three-part look at the kingdom of God now, uh, the present kingdom now that Jesus has come and the Spirit has been poured out. In part one we asked who are God's people today and we focused on Jesus as the last Adam, the offspring of Abraham and the true Israel. And now that the Messiah has come we see more clearly than ever that God's people are those who are in Christ The New Testament rarely describes believers as Christians. It prefers to talk about those who are in Christ. In other words, those who are joined by faith to Jesus. Uh, Not just those who believe that Jesus existed, but those who have faith in him. Jesus, the one who stood firm where Adam and Israel fell, and the one who is the fulfilment of the promises to Abraham. Then in part two we asked where is God's place today? Uh, Do we still look for for significance in an earthly promised land? Uh, Should we think of what is happening in the Middle East right now as having particular prophetic significance? Uh, Well if you missed it and want the full answer you'll need to go back and listen to the sermon Uh, But one of the things that that we noticed is how the New Testament interprets Old Testament prophecy. And so, for example, in Acts 15, uh, the Apostle James quotes Amos' prophecy about rebuilding the tent of David. And he doesn't apply it to a building project in an earthly promised land, but to lives being transformed through the preaching of the gospel. In other words, James sees those prophecies about the rebuilding of the the tent of David as applying to the church, largely Jewish in the Old Testament, but now made up of Jews and Gentiles. The church doesn't replace Israel, uh, but rather, as Paul puts it in Romans 11, we Gentiles are grafted onto God's one olive tree. Uh, In the Old Testament, largely Jewish, but today, Praise God, it is multinational. As for the idea of a, of a rebuilt earthly temple uh, coming one day, complete with sacrifices, uh, well, the Bible is clear that Jesus is the final sacrifice. He himself said, Something greater than the temple is here. We're not going to go backwards. The earthly temple was only ever a copy and a shadow of the heavenly one. Hebrews uh, 8.5 tells us that. Uh, The earthly temple was an earthly model to point us to heavenly realities which has now served its purpose. So here are God's people today. They are those who are in Christ. Where is God's place? 
Well, God is particularly present among the people he is calling from every tribe, language and nation, many of whom are already in heaven, the ultimate promised land. There is one church, the church militant on earth and the church triumphant in heaven. And as we come to worship, we come to the very place where heaven and earth meet. Today then we come to the final two elements of the kingdom as we see them today and they are God's rule and God's blessing. So two points this morning and we'll spend most of our time on the first one uh, which is God's rule. God's rule. The Apostle Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost and he told his hearers uh, how David foresaw that God would set one of his descendants on the throne. Who was that descendant of David? It was Jesus, who, who Peter says God has made both Lord and Christ. The phrase Lord means he rules. Uh, to call him the Lord Jesus Christ it means that he is to be obeyed. As Jesus himself asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You can't take Jesus as your saviour without taking him also as your Lord. So what does obedience to Jesus as Lord look like today? In other words, we could ask, where do we find God's rule summarised? Well, for most of church history, Christians have answered that question uh, with uh, the Ten Commandments. Occasionally you've had fringe groups that, that deny uh, that the Ten Commandments are still relevant. Uh, but the Ten Commandments have been central to Christian discipleship for the last uh, 2,000 years. Uh, so we, we had uh, two new members joining last Lord's Day. And uh, so if, if new Christians uh, are, are coming and saying, well, well, where do I find how God wants me to live? We, we point them, uh, as Christians have done for 2,000 years, uh, to the Ten Commandments. There is a movement today, however, which is gaining a lot of ground, which teaches that the Ten Commandments no longer apply. Why? Because they're part of the Old Testament. And so for the new covenant days that we're living in, we're told that we need new law, which we can only find either in the New Testament or uh, perhaps even more so as we're guided by the Holy Spirit. Now on the, the surface, that might seem to make a certain amount of sense. We are new covenant believers. Uh, the law was given... Uh, as part of the old covenant. But, but that idea soon runs into problems. For example, if we're only to look for, uh, for law in the New Testament, uh, the commandment against marrying your sister isn't repeated in the New Testament. Uh, and so according to one book defending this, this so-called new view, new covenant theology, as long as your sister is a Christian and as long as you live in a country where that isn't actually illegal, then if you marry her, your marriage will be holy in God's sight. Uh, 
It's adherents end up having to claim that things that are an abomination to God in the Old Testament aren't necessarily an abomination to him in the New Testament. And it's hard to get away from, from the idea that it's telling us that God himself changes. But unless a command is repeated in the New Testament, they aren't going to obey it. But is, is that how, how we should read the Bible? Well, actually, when we get to our New Testaments, they assume that we know certain things. Just like if you, you start a new job, uh, they won't plan on teaching you how to read or how to interact with colleagues because they assume that you know uh, how to do these things already. Uh, and so in the New Testament, we're, we're not starting with a blank slate when it comes to who David is, who Abraham is uh, as as Matthew's gospel begins uh, nor are we starting with a blank slate when it comes to right and wrong uh, but something which many Christians today do struggle to answer is why we hold that certain practices that the Old Testament forbids are wrong but others aren't uh, and uh, Unbelievers, of course, will, will throw the, this back at us. You know, they'll, they'll say, well, why, why do you believe uh, that the commandment against homosexuality in Leviticus still applies, but, but we're also told uh, not to wear garments of, of, of two types of, of fabric mixed together. Why do you not believe that as well? Why do you pick and choose what to obey? Uh, one of the, the big arguments... Uh, used by those who would want to rid us of the Ten Commandments is that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Uh, that, that's a number that, that one rabbi came up with in the third century. And they say that all those laws stand or fall together. And you can't say that some of them no longer apply but others do. Now pretty much all Christians agree that some Old Testament laws no longer apply. But if it is true that they all stand or fall together, then you can't just say that, that some of them no longer apply. You have to say that actually all of them no longer apply. So that's the, that's the argument that we are facing. And it might be a convincing argument if all the Old Testament laws had been given at the same time or in the same way. But one of the reasons that most Christians and most Jews have regarded the Ten Commandments as distinct is because of the unique way in which they were given. Uh, there may be 613 Mosaic laws, but only 10 were written on stone. And if you write something on stone, it's a pretty good sign that it's meant to be permanent. Only 10 laws were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Only ten were spoken directly by the voice of God. And in fact, whenever Christians started emphasizing the uniqueness of the Ten Commandments, some of the rabbis said, well, actually, all 613 laws were written on the tablets of stone in between the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, when the rich young ruler asked Jesus which commandments he's to keep, all the, all the commandments Jesus quotes are from the Ten Commandments. The Apostle Paul quotes one of the Ten Commandments in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. 
honor your father and mother. He quotes several of them in Romans 13. And he arguably quotes all of them except the 10th in 1 Timothy 1. And he tells us in Romans 7 that it was the 10th commandment that convicted him of sin. Uh, so uh, those today who would argue that the Ten Commandments aren't valid they, they can't deny this but they're saying well, well, well Paul's not appealing to the Ten Commandments he, he's actually giving new, new laws and uh, the commandments only apply because he's quoted them and yet Paul tells us in, in Romans 2 14 and 15 of a law of nature of a law that has always been in existence Uh, He tells us that even the Gentiles by nature do what the law requires. What does that mean? Well it means that even pagans, even those who've never had a Bible, have recognised that it is wrong to kill, it is wrong to steal and so on. Whereas tribes in in the jungle without Bibles, they haven't seen it as important not to eat bacon or or follow some of the other laws that God gave later on. Uh, So I suppose to to put it another way, are there laws which have been in operation since the creation of the world? That's really the crux of the matter. For example, was murder wrong before Moses came along? Was murder wrong before God said you shall not murder? Well, we know that it was. It was wrong for Cain to kill Abel. Joseph knew that committing adultery with Potiphar's wife would be wrong, even though the words, you shall not commit adultery, hadn't yet been pronounced on Mount Sinai. And actually, when Jesus is questioned about the law, he points backwards, not forwards. When people ask Jesus about divorce, which Moses gave permission for or at least tried to regulate as part of the the laws given to the people when they're in the promised land jesus says from the beginning it was not so so jesus can distinguish between temporary legislation added later things to do with sacrifices and life in the promised land he can distinguish between those things and moral principles which are written into the fabric of the universe. And the majority Christian position throughout history is that those moral principles are summarised in the Ten Commandments. Uh, that, that they're not right simply because God commands them, but God commands them because they are right, because they reflect who he is. So the Ten Commandments are a summary of the, the law of the universe. They are, they are not right simply because they are commanded, but they are commanded because they are right, because they show us what God is like. But the new view uh, basically agrees with the Jews of Jesus' day in seeing the Ten Commandments as only being about outward behaviour. When Jesus uh, says in the Sermon on the Mount, you shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The question is whether Jesus is saying that the sixth commandment is only about murder, uh, but he is now changing it and extending it to cover hatred as well. So is Jesus changing the sixth commandment or 
Or is Jesus saying, well, it was always about hatred as well as murder. And you rabbis are just interpreting it wrong. In other words, is Jesus saying that the commandment itself is a problem and needs changed? Or is he saying that the law was being wrongly interpreted by the rabbis of his day? To put it another way, before Jesus came along, was it fine for people to hate each other as long as they didn't actually kill each other? Well, if we even need to answer, ask that question, you, you, can, you can look at what the Old Testament itself teaches. Leviticus 19.17 You shall not hate your brother in your heart. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't saying, well, well, yes, the commandment was about murder, but now I'm saying that hatred is wrong too. Hatred is wrong, according to Leviticus. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wants to enforce love for our enemies and teach us how to overcome evil with good, uh, are there any guesses as to where he turned? He, he turned to the Old Testament. He quoted Proverbs 25, 21 in Romans twelve twenty. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Uh, one of the, the biggest arguments against the idea uh, that we need uh, new covenant law for new covenant days is the new covenant promises themselves uh, as they're found in the book of Jeremiah. Because what does Jeremiah prophesy about prophesy about new covenant days about the days in which we're living jeremiah 31 33 for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts what is this law that god promises to write on our hearts well, it's clear from how Jeremiah uses the word law elsewhere that he's speaking about a law that had already been revealed to them. It is not some future law. The law they already had would be written on their hearts. So what's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? Well, it's that with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that the law which had been written on stone was now going to be written on people's hearts. The difference is that the law which had been written on stone is now going to be written on people's hearts. It is the same law. But it's not that no believers under the old covenant had God's law written in their hearts. Uh, we, we sang there, Psalm 119, part 15, uh, I, I, I love your law. We're going to finish with Psalm 37, 31, which says of the righteous man, the law of God is in his heart. So there were those even under the old covenant who had God's law written in their hearts. But for the majority of people, uh, sadly, uh, they were God's people in name, but the law had not made it from the stone to their hearts. Uh, and that would not happen until the day the Spirit was poured out. But God, through Jeremiah, promised that that day was coming. And so what is our need today? What do we need the Holy Spirit to do? Do we need the Holy Spirit to write new laws? 
No, but we need the Spirit to so work in our lives that he might write God's unchangeable standards on our hearts. And as we stand on this side of the cross, we can see how the Lord Jesus has perfectly kept these commandments as no one has ever done before and then died to take the punishment we deserve for breaking them. So yes, we, we still point to the Ten Commandments, but not the Ten Commandments as separated from Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life's work. Uh, why does Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you, when he speaks about loving one another? Uh, why does the, the Apostle John call the same commandment an old commandment as well as a new commandment? Well, because in Jesus Christ, the old commandment to love God and love neighbour neighbor, had been lived out to such an extent that it had never been seen before. And that is a pattern for us. Mount Sinai was never a ladder that could be climbed to reach heaven. That's where the Pharisees went wrong. Rather, it was a declaration of God's unchanging standards given to a people who had already been redeemed. And and the whole sacrificial system that was given was to point to the need for and the possibility of forgiveness. Through the one who all that shed blood pointed to, the coming Saviour. And so down through the years, Christians have seen the Ten Commandments not as merely Jewish law. Uh, They were in operation before there was any such thing as a Jew. But as a summary of the constitution of the universe, uh, which have always been and will always be in operation. It was for our breach of these commandments that Jesus died. And as his redeemed people, they are the standard that he calls us to live by even though we still fall short each day. So what does God's rule look like in the present kingdom? It looks like Jesus' people shaping their lives according to the Ten Commandments, as interpreted by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, as interpreted by the Apostles in the letters, and only ever perfectly lived out by Jesus. Secondly, more briefly, we come to God's blessing. God's blessing. So God's people, God's place. uh, Today, God's rule. And uh, finally, God's blessing. Each week, we've seen that the greatest blessing God gives is a relationship with him. Adam and Eve experienced an unspoiled relationship with him in Eden. God's promise to Abraham can be summed up in the words, I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. God's people, even in the Old Testament, they were not people who would just be satisfied with stuff, with a promised land or whatever. Uh, The people of Israel experienced God's presence and a relationship with him, primarily through the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and the temple. And as we thought about uh, in a previous sermon, when Jesus came to earth, he tabernacled among us. That's part of the reason why with the coming of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem was no longer needed. God was no longer present in a building, but in a person. Something greater than the temple truly was here. 
But Jesus was only on earth for a limited time. He's not physically present on earth today. So how can we experience God's presence? Well, here are two ways. Uh, The first is that Jesus is present as we gather together and as his word is opened. Jesus is present as we gather together and his word is opened. Uh, you may go to a church sometime and uh, maybe there's, there's an opening prayer and you hear the words, God, we invite you to come among us. But that's to get things backward. It's, it's not us coming and inviting God to come among us. It's us coming into God's presence. In Ephesians 3.17, the Apostle Paul tells us, uh, tells the church in Ephesus that Jesus had come and preached peace to them. But when Jesus was on earth, he had never been to Ephesus. So what's Paul talking about? He means that as the word had been preached in Ephesus, Jesus himself had been present. And we can say the same about Strunrar. We know God's presence today when his word is opened. And we also know Jesus' presence by the spirit who indwells us. Understandably, Jesus' disciples didn't want them to go back up to heaven. They, they were worried. But he said to them, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Who is the helper? He's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every Christian. He's the one who enables us to live the life we've been called to live. To live out the Ten Commandments, not just in terms of outward conformity, but to actually delight in God's law. Do we realise what, what an awesome thing it is to have God himself dwelling in us by his Spirit? Well, if we do, we'll take seriously the warnings in Scripture about grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwells us as individuals. He also indwells us corporately as a church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? In place of the temple, God is specially present on earth in his church. Yes, we no longer have to be in a certain physical location to experience God's presence But that doesn't mean we don't need to meet together. It's not uncommon to hear someone say, well, I've given up on church, but I haven't given up on Jesus. I think biblically speaking, we would have to say that to give up on church is to give up on Jesus. In the book of Revelation, where does Jesus reveal himself to the Apostle John? In the midst of his churches. Each of those seven letters in Revelation ends with the words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If the people in Ephesus, Smyrna and Pergamon wanted to hear the Holy Spirit speaking, they would need to go to church. And it's the same today. Yes, the Holy Spirit speaks every time we open our Bibles. But he is especially present when God's people meet together. Peter says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. By ourselves, we're just individual stones. 
but when we join together with other believers we become God's temple and so we've seen that over these last three sermons a glorious picture God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying his presence and blessing so are you part of this kingdom Have you put your faith in Jesus as the greater Joshua who who will lead his people into the true promised land, heaven itself? How do you know if you have? Well, all those who trust in Jesus will be indwelt by the Spirit of Jesus and they will bring forth the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. These things are not new laws. Uh, we can find them in the Old Testament too. But what is new is that, Jesus, is that in Jesus Christ we have seen them lived out as never before. And if you are part of this kingdom, even if you are a weak, failing, faltering Christian, uh, as we all are, then do you realise that all these things are your privilege even now? In Christ you are one of God's people. Although you walk around on earth, there's a sense in which you're in God's place, heaven already. Uh, You know the presence and blessing of Jesus through his word and spirit, uh, particularly as we meet together. And yet the best is yet to come. For the unbeliever, this world is the best they will ever get. While for the Christian, these elements of God's place and God's blessing that we've looked at, the part of the present kingdom, but there's still a future kingdom to come, of which it has been said, no eye has heard, nor ear, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what we'll look at as much as we can in our final sermon in this series next week god willing amen well earlier i quoted from psalm 37 we'll sing it now it speaks of god's law being written in the heart of the believer Uh, this is something that some of God's people did experience under the old covenant. Uh, but, but the new covenant promises are that, that a far greater number of people would experience it. And not just limited largely to the Jewish people, but throughout the world. Uh, so verse 4, within his heart is his God's law, his feet no slip will make. It's true, uh, first and foremost, of the Lord Jesus, but it is true of the believer as well. Uh, We do fall, we do stumble, uh, but we will not finally fall. We will be raised up. Uh, The first verse we'll sing, verse 22, because the Lord loves justice. Uh, There's a question. Why does God call us to be just? Is it uh, because... It's an arbitrary thing or is it because the Lord loves justice because God in his nature is just and so he cannot do anything other than call us to be just. And then verse 26, wait on the Lord and keep his way. 
uh, we, we read elsewhere that God made his way known to Moses. He made a law that reflects what he is like. Uh, the law is a revelation of God. But the greatest revelation of God is the Lord Jesus Christ who lived out that law as no one else has ever done. So Psalm 37, 22 to 26, we'll stand to sing. <laughs>